Amen. I told these guys after singing those songs last night that I really feel like everything that I'm going to say today, uh, we've just sang, honestly. And uh, so one of them said I should just close in prayer and we could move on. But, um, but I want you to think about this because what we're going to be talking about is surrendering everything to the God who, when we surrender everything, okay, in that God, ironically, we find that we gain everything. So think about that. Since the beginning of Advent, we've been talking about the gospel. And as I've said repeatedly, what we've said about the gospel is that it's not just the good news that God and through Christ Jesus is making us new, but instead it's bigger than that. So the gospel is the good news that God and through Christ Jesus is actually, and even right now, in the process of making absolutely everything new. And that's a process that he himself will complete upon his return. But here's the part that we've been talking about. It's a process that right now he wants to involve us in as what happens in our lives, as we learn by the power of his spirit, as we learn in obedience to his word, as we learn in community with one another to do what? To wake up every single day and to stop saying, I'm going to offer myself to me today and to start saying, Lord, I'm going to offer myself to you today. How do you want to use me as your renewing agents? That's the idea we've been carrying in my family, in my office, in my school, in this community, in this city, and in the world. So that's what we've been talking about in a nutshell. And as we continue that conversation today, what I want you to see is that living as that kind of renewing agent of God in your family, in your office, in your school, in this community, in the city, and in the world requires a lot more from us than just this value judgment that I've been pounding home week after week after week after week, in which we reckon finally, and then get up every day and re-reckon finally, with this fact that, you know what, God's mission to renew absolutely everything in terms of a value judgment way outweighs, indeed it infinitely outweighs, my absolutely everything and yours. That's kind of easy. You know, I mean, that doesn't take a lot of mental gymnastics. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that when I or when you put ourselves and then our absolutely everything in one side of a great big imaginary scale and then go over to the other side and we put God in his mission to renew absolutely everything in the other side of the scale, that the God side of the scale is going to come crashing to the ground. That's the easy part. Here's the more challenging part. It's realizing that living as the renewing agent of God means in light of that value judgment and everything else we've talked about, who we're not, as in we're not God, but He is. And therefore, we're not only not at the center of the universe, we're not even at the center of our universe. As in who we are, the spokespeople of God in the world, and the only spokespeople of God in the world. Like, outside of the church, who's going to take the renewing message and mercies of Jesus to the world? I'm going with no one. As in who Jesus is, the unique Son of God, the singular Lamb of God, who alone can transform a life and can transform a world. And the transformational love of God as we come to grips day by day by day with the reality of of who we are. And we all know who we are, right? And, And yet that God the Father so loved us that He gave Jesus for us. Okay, the easy part's the value judgment. The difficult part is coming to grips with the reality that in light of that value judgment and all of those other things, living as the renewing agent of God requires us to take ourselves and our absolutely everything and to surrender it wholly to God. It's an all-in deal. 
And so let me just say what I know you want to say. You want to say, wow, you know, that's a little intimidating. Okay, maybe that's a lot intimidating. Okay, so here's the deal. Tom, that's scary. Listen, I'm standing up here. You don't have to tell me that it's scary. I'm like really well acquainted with that, okay? It's scary. But here's the question I'm going to ask me and that I want you to ask you. Exactly why is it scary? Like, what is it about surrendering yourself and your everything to the God in whom you find everything, that's scary to you. What is it? Because I think that what it reveals is that there's something that's a part of your absolutely everything that you're holding on to and that you're looking to to do things for you or to provide things for you that in fact, in the end and authentically, only the God to whom you surrender absolutely everything can provide anyway. It's highly ironic, is it not? Significant, security, comfort, distraction, relief, joy, peace. Everything's fleeting. There's one who is immovable. And He's yours in Christ. And what He's calling you to do is to stop chasing after the needs of your soul and so many other different things. And every single one of us do this. And He's saying, listen, just surrender all that stuff to me. And then look to me. Because everything you're looking for, I have, and it's yours already in Christ. So here's what I want to do today. I want to look at two different stories. I want to look at a story about Jesus and the disciples, these guys who were not yet a part of the twelve, but who become a part of the twelve disciples of Jesus, who come to understand who Jesus is, who get the offer of follow me, be fishers of men, and who say, you know what? We're in. Like, and we're not just a little bit in. We're not partially in. We're not mostly in. We're not trying to negotiate a settlement whereby we're comfortably in. No, they see it and they go, so everything and we get to do this? Here's everything. Just here. Just take it. Just go. Good. It's yours. And they walk away with the Lord. All right, so that's story number one. Story number two is the story of a guy who hears that same call. But he responds differently. He says, all right, so Lord, here's the deal. I'm like a little bit in on this thing. Like I'm like partially in on this thing. You know what? I'm even willing to go mostly in on this thing. So like if we're going to sit down at the negotiating table, Lord, you know, here's what I'm willing to do. Here's what I'm not willing to do. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is what I'm not comfortable with. It's not the way that it works with God. It's not. Everything we are and everything we have came from Him. It's all His. And he's saying, hey, whoa, I'm here to give, (laughs) not to take. And I'm here to give you everything you're looking for and longing for. So this guy does not go all in, and here's how his story ends. It ends with him getting up off his knees, watch the knees that's in both stories, and walking away from the Lord sad. There's no reason for that. So the first story that we're going to look at is found in Luke chapter 5, where we find a fuller account of hopefully what you've been studying in your personal worship in Matthew's gospel. And as I said, it's a story that involves Jesus and some of his disciples, but the primary disciple that you see in the story is the Apostle Peter. Like, he is always the primary guy, is he not? But Peter, at this point in the narrative, is not the great world-changing, world-renewing, unbelievably powerful, amazing, incredible apostle and church leader and all of that. He's... Peter at this point, and these other guys in the story at this point, guys, they're just fishermen. That's who they are. And so this is what their life consisted of then, okay? And it's pretty monotonous. They would fish all night, 
and they would sleep all day. And they would fish all night, and they would sleep all day. And they would fish all night, and they would sleep all day. And they would fish all night. And they would sleep all day, and they would fish all night. And then they would sleep all day after a monotonous day in which they would wake up sometime in the late afternoon, and they'd all meet down at their fishing boats. They're partners. They've got a business. And they'd push these big, heavy wooden fishing boats that were about 27 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide. They were not canoes. They'd get in them and they'd push off into the water and they'd row out to the fishing spots that they inherited from their fathers who inherited them from their fathers who in all likelihood inherited them from their fathers and so forth. And then they'd take out their nets, which were about 100 feet long. And once they hit the water, weighed about 1,000 pounds before the fish got in them. And they'd set them in a circle. And then they'd pull it in and collect the fish. And they'd set them in a circle and pull it in and collect the fish. And they'd set them in a circle and pull it in and collect the fish until they fished out this spot. And then they'd row to the next spot and set them in a circle and pull them in and collect the fish and so on and so forth all night long. And the reason they did this at night is because at night, the fish would come up from the bottom of the sea and they were easier to catch. And they didn't see the net as easily. And besides all that, it's really hot there. Okay, so it's cooler at night. So they'd fish all night long until the sun started to come up in the east, began to peak over the mountains on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a big lake. And then they'd row back to the shore where there'd be a big crowd of people sitting there waiting to buy their fish for breakfast. And then after they sold their fish, they'd get their nets out and they'd stretch them out on the beach and they'd clean all the junk that they picked up in their nets and they'd repair all the little you know, tears and whatnot that may have occurred in their nets. And then they'd wait for their nets to dry because they're made of linen and they don't want to fold them up wet and store them. They'll just start to rot. And so then after that whole process was done, they'd fold them up, they'd put them away in their boats and then they'd go home and they'd go to sleep so that they could wake up later that afternoon and do it all over Again, and it's on one of those mornings, having fished all night long and caught exactly zero, so they got skunked, and they're tired, and they're frustrated, and they row into the shore, and there's the people, and they have nothing to sell, so that's a bummer, that they encounter Jesus as they're cleaning their nets, as they're mending their nets, as they're waiting for their nets to dry. The Lord has come out on the beach, maybe to buy breakfast, maybe to preach a sermon to the crowd that He knew would naturally gather there, maybe both. And in either case, they're doing their thing, looking forward to going to sleep. And Jesus is doing his thing with his back to the lake. And the crowd is pressing in on him and in on him, forcing him kind of like into the water. And I don't know if he bumped into Peter's boat or if it kind of came up next to him or whatever. But he gets into the boat of Peter, which was, you know, probably a little shocking to Peter. And he says to Peter, look, can you just push off the shore a little bit so that I can just sit in the front of the boat and just talk to the crowd from here? It's just a little bit easier. Otherwise, you know, like I'm going to drown. And so Peter kind of looks at his guys, at least as I imagine it. And they're like, okay. And so he does. And then we read this in verse 4. It says that when Jesus had finished speaking, so the sermon is over and Peter and the guys are going, whoo, you know, because we're late on sleep. Jesus says to Simon, that's Peter, He says, put out into the deep, row your boat way out there again, and let down your nets for a catch of fish. And Peter is like really respectful, guys. We're going to see that in a minute. But his internal dialogue had to go something like this. You know, something like, Lord, listen, 
You are an amazing teacher. There is something clearly extraordinary about you. And when you talk about the Bible, you talk about it like nobody else I've ever heard in my life. And I am all ears in that regard. But good grief, I've been a fisherman all my life. My father was a fisherman all his life. His father was a fisherman all of his life. I mean, it's like Groundhog Day generationally for us. If we know anything about anything, it's about catching fish. And here's what maybe you've missed. So like A... We fished all night. That's the time of day to do it with nets, and that's all we have, and caught nothing. And B, we are whipped. I mean, we did that all night. We would have been to bed an hour ago. So now what you want us to do is to row back out there, put our nets, which are dry now, in the water, only to then have to clean them and dry them again, and to do what? We're not going to catch anything. All the fish are on the bottom of the sea. But he goes for it. So Peter says it this way. He answers Jesus and he says, Master, very respectful. We toiled all night and took nothing. So for the record. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And so then I think with probably at least a few awkward glances from his guys. Peter, who's the boss, says, we're rowing out. So they row out. You know the story. They put in their nets, and what happens? They catch so many fish in one haul that they've got to call to shore for them to bring another boat out. They fill both of the boats with fish like they're in jeopardy of sinking, and the message is not lost on these guys. And Peter, in a sense, acting for the group, who understands suddenly, like it, it breaks through to him, that the God whose dominion that extends even to the bottom of the sea is actually seated in his boat, does what happens when you realize that you're in the presence of God. He wades through all of these fish that are flopping around, you know. And what does he do? He hits his knees. Remember that, because you'll see it again in the second story. And notice what he says. He says, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. And you say, well, why in the world would he say that? Because he's realized that he's in the presence of God. And here's what happens when you consciously enter into the presence of God. As opposed to the presence of your family or friends or our city or our culture or each other. Okay? You see goodness for what it actually is. And you realize that that doesn't look like me or like you and that there's nothing you can do about it. And it's traumatic. We see that again and again in the Bible as people enter into the presence of God. It's like they go in feeling strong, and then not so much. I mean, you think of Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he goes into the temple. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He sees a vision of Almighty God on the throne. And what does he say? He proclaims a curse upon himself. He says, woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. It's emblematic of your heart. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have now seen the King, the Lord of glory. That's what happens with Peter. 
He sees Jesus and then he sees himself and he thinks, oh, good grief. And it's traumatic and he can't handle the trauma of it. And so again, he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord, for Peter and all who were with him in these fishing boats were astonished. They got the message at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, all these other guys who were partners with Peter in the fishing business, but who also end up at the end of this story following Jesus. And so now notice what Jesus says, because he says it to everyone who does this to everybody who goes whoa I'm a sinful man I didn't realize that I didn't get the gravity of it but suddenly now it has been brought home to me and there's nothing I can do about it but but claim your goodness and your grace and the sacrifice of of Christ himself here's the message for those of us who do that It's do not be afraid. That is an awesome message because otherwise it's a fearful thing. But through faith in Christ, we're made clean and and clean from everything. And, And not just clean, though. It's not like he goes, okay, you're saved. See you in heaven. No. And it's immediate. We're made clean and then we're made useful. We're made clean and then we're called immediately into mission. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, he says, you, meaning all of you guys, will be doing what? We'll be catching men. How? By living as the renewing agents of God in their world in that day, which is our call now. But don't miss this because here's what that requires. It says, and when they brought their boats to land, they left almost everything. They left behind what they felt comfortable divesting themselves of. They decided that this is careful enough. I feel good about this measure of risk and I'm going to go ahead and go all in on that. It's not it. It says, and when they brought their boats to land, they left everything. Now think about the everything. They left boats. They left nets. They left business. They left friends. They left wives. They left kids. These are married men. They left everything and they followed Jesus. And you say, well, good grief, man. I mean, you know, does that mean that I've got to walk away from everything and everyone? No. But it does mean that everything and everyone goes on the table. And that is scary. But then again, the question we're dealing with is, why is that scary? Because the one to whom we surrender everything is the one through whom we find everything. We gain everything. Everything becomes ours, which brings us to story number two, which we find in Luke chapter 18, which is also contained in Matthew and Mark. And it's a story about the, you know the story, rich young ruler, and we know that he's rich because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree on this. We know that he's young, Matthew tells us that, and we know that he's a ruler, as we'll see, because Luke mentions it. And when he tells us that he's a ruler, what he means by that almost certainly is that he's a part of the religious establishment of the Jews that in that day stood very strongly and publicly opposed to Jesus who has come to the town of this man. And the man is very taken with the Lord. So Jesus is teaching in this guy's town, and this guy shows up as probably a pretty conspicuous part of the community of people there in town who all knew who he was and that he was a part of the religious establishment in particular. And so he's there taken in the messages of the Lord, and he's very taken with the Lord. And we know that because what happens is Mark tells us that when Jesus finally finishes all the teaching that he's going to do in this town and he gets up to leave to go to the next town, this guy can't contain himself. Here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't send a messenger to Jesus and say, hey, 
hey, you know, I'd kind of like to buy you lunch and I've got some questions that I'd like to ask you privately. He doesn't do that. He doesn't follow Jesus to the next town and come to see him at night so that nobody sees him. Other people do these kinds of things in the Bible. Not this guy. He is so moved he can't stand it. So Jesus gets up to leave and he thinks, good grief, I, 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 I can't let him get away. So he bursts forth from the crowd and he does something that no dignified man would have done in that culture, which is run. They didn't run. Sorry. Nike would have never made it in that culture, okay? just They didn't do that. He runs from the crowd. He runs to Jesus. He gets in front of the Lord and blocks his path by falling to his knees. A sign of abject humility. Utter and complete subservience. It's astonishing. And so everybody in town is going, what? Did we just see? Because in this one move, you have a wealthy man bowing before a poor man. Didn't help happen in that culture. You have a man with great status bowing before a man who had none. Did not happen in that culture. You had a highly educated man bowing before a man with no formal education. Did not happen in that culture. And, probably most significantly, you've got a part of the religious establishment of the Jews that stood opposed to Jesus bowing to the Jesus that they opposed publicly. So I think we have to agree that the guy's willing to go a little bit in. Maybe even most of the way in. He's not willing to go all the way in. So what is his one thing? You know what it is. He holds on to his wealth and he says, no, 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 in this, I'm looking for this to provide me with things that, that in fact only God in the end can provide. But the question that we're asking today is not what is his one thing. That's just illustrative. The question I'm asking is, well, what is my one thing? What is your one thing? Maybe it's that, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's like nine things and you're going, do I just have to have one? <laughs> you know, because I might have nine. Okay, well, I might have 90. Whatever. Think about you. For that guy, it was his well. For us, it might be something else. It could be our plans, for example, you know. God, I'm afraid to submit my plans to you because, I don't know, I mean, if I could sit down with you and negotiate, I think I'd be cool with tweaking them a little bit. But like, if I give them all to you, you might get crazy with my plans. And I don't want to do that because I'm looking to my plans to provide things for me. I trust in them. It could be freedom. Lord, I'll give you this area of my life, but I won't give you these other 93 areas of my life because I look to them for distraction or, 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 or for relief or for whatever. It doesn't matter what. What's your one thing? So having publicly humiliated himself by bursting forth from the crowd and running in front of Jesus and blocking his path by you know, sliding in on his knees, Luke then tells us in verse 18 that this rich young ruler then asked Jesus a question saying, good, that's a key word, and then he says teacher, which is actually also important. And then here's the question. He says, what must I, this is the key, do to inherit eternal life? Which tells you that unlike Peter, he doesn't know who Jesus is. I mean, he's impressed with Jesus, but he hasn't gotten who he is not, meaning this man, and who Christ is authentically is. And I say that because when you consciously enter into the presence of God, man, you see goodness for what it authentically is. 
And you realize, and this man has not realized this, this is what the Lord's going to help him with, that it doesn't look like me, and it doesn't look like you, and it doesn't look like him. And that there's nothing you can do but what Peter did, just confess your sinfulness and your need for Christ. In which case, it's do not be afraid, for I've got you. And so what Jesus does next is he challenges this guy on his use of the word good and what it means. Jesus says, said to him, why do you call me good? There it is, for, and here's the definition of good. No one, don't miss that, is good except God alone. And you didn't call me good God, you just called me good teacher, which tells me that you don't know that I'm actually God and that you, you don't yet know what good is. And so to help this man discover that, uh-oh, maybe he is not good, what Jesus does is he takes this guy to the Ten Commandments, which when fully and properly understood are in fact reflective of the holiness of the nature of the character of God. And so Jesus says, you know the Ten Commandments, and then he just starts rolling them off. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, at which point, at least in my mind, this guy kind of interrupts Jesus and, and effectively says, listen, you know, you can stop right there because you're right, I do know the Ten Commandments and here's what else I know, he says. And he's sincere. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said, well, then apparently you missed my Sermon on the Mount, but good news, it's on iTunes. You should catch it. But just because you missed it, let me rehearse a few things. Like, you know, when the Bible says do not murder, it doesn't just mean don't strangle somebody out here. It means when you're driving through traffic in Fort Lauderdale, you know, don't strangle anybody in here either. Which is almost impossible. And then positively, it means promote life. It has a positive aspect. You know, when it says do not commit adultery, it doesn't mean just don't do that. It means don't do it in here either. Okay, he doesn't say that, but what he does do is he looks into the heart of this man, just like he looks into mine and yours, like there's nothing hidden from him. And that's good, because he doesn't berate this man. He calls him to life through repentance. So he sees that this guy has a thing, like I have a thing, like you have a thing, or maybe we all have 93 things. And for you or for me, it may be different. It may be a different thing, but that's not the point. He goes directly to this guy's thing and he says, okay, look, one thing you still lack. Go and sell all that you have and distribute the proceeds to the poor. And you will have what? Treasure in heaven. I just want to pause and think about that for a second because typically when we hear that phrase, the only part we hear is the first half. And all we think about is the loss. But he's not calling him to a loss. He's calling him to a gain. I mean, if there even is a heaven, if there is a heaven, if there is a God, if this is all real, and there's a heavenly currency, can you actually compare the two? So even in calling the man to deal with his issue, he's saying, look, you'll find infinitely more. One thing you still lack, go sell all that you have and distribute the proceeds to the poor and you will have gain. You will have treasure in heaven. And then what does he say? Because he effectively said the same thing to Peter and the guys on the boat. He then says, and come follow me. You know what? Be my 13th disciple. Change the world. But 
when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad. For that was his one thing, and he didn't want to give it up. And then Matthew and Mark tells us, or tell us that he got off his knees, turned his back, and he walked away from the Lord. Sad. And in walking away, it's ironic. So he's walking away from the source of everything that he's looking for. That's it. And that's the end of his story, unless it, it finds life in our stories. Isn't that true? I want you to listen to what C.S. Lewis said, because I think it's brilliant. He said, Christianity is either of utmost importance or it is of no importance. But here's what it isn't. It isn't just of some importance. Think about that. So living as the renewing agents of God requires us to surrender our absolutely everything to God in whom, parenthetically, we gain absolutely everything. And it's scary, something we've got to do every day. But why is it scary for you? What is it? And what would it take for you to give it away? To give it to the Lord day upon day? Because it seems to me, whatever that is, that's the call of discipleship. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's a one-time deal. And then take up his cross and follow me how frequently? Daily, right? It's a walk of joy. It's a walk of life. It's a walk of fullness. It isn't easy. It isn't easy. But there's gain. Focus on the gain, not the loss. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us that though uh, we are sinful people, um, even if we only see that when we enter into your presence, and though we are undeserving of the Holy One, of the infinitely valuable One, and of the love of the Father that all of us routinely walk away from, God, you do not walk away from us. You are the pursuer of our souls. And in your love, you are relentless in your pursuit. And that is awesome. You have made us for yourselves, as Augustine said. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Lord, let us find our rest in you. Let us stop fearing you and, and fearing loss. And let us embrace you and gain. Do these things and anything else you want to do, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.